Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the World Cup. On caught offside. Ronaldo! Oh, it's come on time! Ronaldo! Brazil in front! It's Ronaldo! And Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! And it's a concert! And Germany are the champions of the world. It's Mbappé! Now, here are your hosts, Andrew and JJ. Oh, yes! Caught offside, just outside of New York City and from an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? I have um, I have a knee full of cortisone. Oh, fun. Yeah. I felt like uh, any given Sunday where he's begging for the injection just so he can play one more time to get his bonus. Um, what are you playing for? The love of the game. Nice. My own mental health, definitely. Yeah, that, that's a thing. That's real. Jeez, man. There's nothing like play. It doesn't have to be. What I've discovered is it doesn't have to be like 11 v 11 with referees. It can be just on a on a Thursday night, seven aside, just the buzz afterwards. The adrenaline, go for a chat with your friends about it. It's, it's such a social thing. Yeah. That's nice. I've receded into a life of just playing Rumble Fumble with a three-year-old and a six-year-old. You. That's where I'm at. Um, Which, by the way, is not nothing. I do enjoy it. But the only problem is it's it's guaranteed 100%. All games of Rumble Fumble end with someone in tears. I'm not. It's 100% nailed on. I'm not on. familiar with Rumble Fumble, but I do uh, know that it's you... A, it's a football game that you play with your friends if you don't feel like actually playing real football. It's literally, uh, you may know it as tackle the man with the ball. Like, that's literally all it is. Whoever has the ball, you try and kill him and, and pry it loose, and then now you have the ball, and you try to stay up with it as long as you can until you get killed. So I've been playing this with my with my small children. Um, <laughs> and it's it's a joy. I love it. It's really fun. But, like, someone, it just has to end in tears. It's it's almost yeah. written into the, the bylaws. Me and my brother invented a game where we were just bored of playing soccer together. So we would go down the field beside our house after the cattle had been taken off it. So... 
we'd be back at school September, October. It was, you know, maybe a a kind of a wet time of the year in Ireland, which is basically the calendar is is a wet time in Ireland. Yeah. And uh, so it was a game we invented called trip and pull. And uh, you'd get the ball, but if you had the ball, you were subject to tripping and pulling tactics until you were flipped over into the dirt. Then the other person would have the ball, and then you'd have to trip and pull them over to get it back. Interesting. It was it was pretty basic stuff. It yeah. wasn't very cerebral. And I know the bonus people come was here if, for this. It, the bonus was if you landed in a cow pad, then uh, then it was bad. Then you had to explain to ma'am why you were covered in cow shit. Hmm. There you go. Nice. Thank you for cursing. Also, it's a joy. Oh. I've been getting more tweets of, of people who are appreciative of my unwillingness to bend on this. That was a wholesome story from the old country. Well, that can't. That doesn't get an explicit rating. Well, guess what? Watch what happens when this ends, and that little e pops up right next to the title of this podcast. You I'm love not going that back on. to bleep them. Oh my god! Who are you? Uh, who was it? The, who was it from the eighties? Was it? Was it Liz Cheney? Was the, was it Dick Cheney's wife that was really you know she was she who who were the, the crew that were slapping the explicit ratings on all the records who was the politician's wife that led that I don't know Nancy Reagan uh, I, no I don't know. no Nancy was don't get into drugs Nancy was focused yeah. on drugs and, and and Mr T I don't know but but you're saying that's who I am now oh you're FCC Andy. <laughs> Uh, what a podcast we have coming up for you. Uh, this is going to be a fun one. Lots of round of 16 action going on. Brazil just looking so Brazilian. England looking a, a little bit Brazilian as well, I should say. And France Steady. looking a little Brazilian. Steady. Oh, all right. Uh, I'll, I'll be Declan Rice on this podcast. Someone needs to be to stand up for the What, English. are you going to join another podcast and then We're pretend gonna... like this one didn't exist? If that, if, if that one leads me to a, to greater growth... I've sure. always wanted to do a podcast with the men in blazers, and I'm delighted. <laughs> you know, it was my dream. Uh, Declan, uh, you did win three senior caps for another country. No, I didn't. Well, I don't know if he ever denied that, but uh, no. your point is oh. well taken, and I am, I am, I can be bought. I can be bought. So we'll talk all about that, and then um, we'll do a little bit of a little bit more U.S. men's national team retrospective because I'll probably be doing U.S. men's national team retrospectives on this podcast uh, maybe until the end of time. We might be past the 2026 World Cup, JJ, and I'll still be doing retrospectives on Pulisic not being able to score that goal in the third minute of 2022. And but, uh, but, but the worst thing about you is, that, yeah. like, there's no lies here. You'll be you're you're you'll be in bed with your wife. She'll be desperate to go to sleep, and you'll be tapping her on the shoulder. Do you think Pepe would have made a difference? Go to sleep, Andrew. Please. Everyone is so focused on the Pulisic one, but what about Reams in the 48th? <laughs> but here's what's, here's what's interesting about it, though. So we'll obviously give a few more of our thoughts. But, JJ, what a special guest we have coming on this podcast. Honestly, one of my favorites, um, Danny Higginbotham, of course, former, former Premier Leaguer. You've seen him on... MLS coverage with the Philadelphia Union, where he's been an analyst for them. And, of course, you've seen him on NBC's coverage of the Premier League. He's everywhere. And, and what a perfect guy to talk to uh, during this World Cup. He has, a, he has like, a foot in so many different camps. So I, I thought he was just perfect. It, it, I can't wait for that. Uh, well, I mean, full disclosure, we've already recorded the interview. No. Well, and why, why do that? The illusion because... of, of this all happening. In, like, what, 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 do you, what is served by you unveiling that? No, I've pulled back the curtain because because Danny talks in a very interesting way about 
a club that are essentially hothousing centre forwards or attempting to grow their own centre forwards, which is very germane, if I may use a legal term, for uh, what's going on with the US. Oh, there you go. So uh, now I can. Now that JJ has pulled back the curtain, I can actually. I don't have to dance around it. I can tell you definitively, it was a great conversation, and you should stay tuned for it because it was awesome. Yeah, it was. Uh, remember to uh, subscribe on the YouTube feed. We did a live stream, of course, following the Netherlands match the other day. If you haven't seen it yet, go back and watch it. Um, of course, the audio for that is available as well. You've probably seen that by now on your podcast feeds. Subscribe, rate, review, and uh, more importantly, I'm noticing this. Tell your friends. Like, I feel like that's that's a big one. Um, yeah. I've had the chance during the course of this World Cup, so many people, uh, you know, they, they parachute in, which, like I've always said, is fine. I'm totally cool with that. So I've been just, like, left and right telling all these people, like, to, that, by the way, this I do this thing. You should listen to it if you're getting into this. And, and I think that, you know, that's there's a lot to that. So everybody out there, if you enjoy this podcast, rating, reviewing, subscribing, that's all super helpful. But so is, like... If John in the cubicle next to you is suddenly talking soccer and he hasn't for the last four years, tell him about this podcast. It goes a long way. We genuinely appreciate uh, anybody who does that. Let's speaking dive in, par- JJ. Yeah, yeah. Spe- what do you got? Speaking of parachuting in, uh, Aaron Timms has done his uh, four-year hatchet job on Fox's coverage for The Guardian. Uh, I mean. Uh, it was. Uh, it's a tour de force. It's very, very funny. Now, it is opinion piece. Somebody in our comments called it unprofessional. It's an opinion piece. Okay, I know in America we've lost sight of the difference between news, facts, and then opinion, but this is an opinion piece, and it's his opinion that uh, uh, the broadcaster has offered up a feast of gaffes, stupidity, and unconquerable on-air awkwardness for U.S. viewers to enjoy. And his defense of uh, U.S., because Aaron is based here, I'm not sure if he is an American um, by birth, or, but he's been here a long time. Uh, his defense of, of the U.S. Uh, soccer watcher is... Is very good, I think. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I got you, about halfway through it. I said it's clear what this is. Like, I don't know what else. What else do I need to read in this? Like, he, I know. Ha- he hates some, literally everything they're doing. Nothing is good. And I so, mean, a like, lot of okay, it isn't. But you know, you you yeah. won't wade into these waters. You should tell people you're you're very anti um, criticizing anybody else who's even vaguely in the same realm as us. Well, I don't agree with all of what he said. I don't think everything is terrible. What's good? You know, I mean, I love some of their commentators that are that are broadcasting this. Like, okay, you know, I agree. We've always I agree. loved. We've always been fans of John Strong. We've always we've been had fans him on of, regularly. Yeah, I've always I would been say fans Strong's... of Derek Ray, Ian Dark, JP Della Camera. Like, I think that these are the, this World Cup is being delivered to us by some great voices. Uh, so like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to rip every single thing that they've done. I mean, yeah, there's things that I would do differently. Some things annoy me. Um, certainly other things have been good. Like, look, I don't know. I don't need to go. Don't see, know, see, uh, cause it, yeah, yeah, you always, I got his, to me. I get his point. He hates everything. And that's, that's the article that he wanted to write. You want me in the shotgun seat, just firing bullets everywhere. So, you know, you don't not get how I shot. roll. All right. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. So, all right, here we go. Let's get into some of the World Cup stuff, JJ, because there's been a lot going on. Let's start with what's most recent, and we'll work our way down from there. Um, and that was today's results, or if you're listening to this, I guess on uh, Tuesday morning, yesterday's results in the round of 16, Brazil and South Korea. Oh, my God, this was, I mean, this is, like, I'm sorry. I, I've enjoyed South Korea in this tournament. Obviously, Hyungman's son is one of my favorite players of all time. Um, 
their story has been a fun one to kind of follow throughout this tournament. But like, They've been good. But there is something to sitting down for a knockout stage match in the World Cup with Brazil on the TV. There's something to just wanting to see full Brazil. And I'm sorry that South Korea were the on the receiving end of it, but we got a, we got br- the Brazilian experience today. I thought that was that was pretty fun to watch. They they were at maximum Brazil. Uh, the goals were just you couldn't draw up. So there used to be an arcade game in the in the town in Donegal that we used to visit in Bunkrana. That was sorry, yeah, Bunkrana, which was like. It was called like Brazil soccer or something. And you'd go in and none of the goals that you could score with it could be tap-ins. They were all <laughs> bicycle kicks. And, you know, and I just thought it was the best thing in the world. And, but it never felt real. And there was times today, that first half, just it was, it was if you took like 1982 Brazil and repackaged them for a modern audience with the names changed, you know, Richarlison and Paqueta and, um, and Neymar. And it was just... It was a destruction, an absolute destruction. But it was a destruction in the style of Brazil. And, and it's what people want to see when Brazil play all the time. Imagine that's, the, that's your standard. That's the bar. That's, that's shocking. It's a lot it's, to have to live up to that. Yeah, and probably <laughs> two, the two most iconic goals. Um, Paquetas was the volley where he, it was scooped up and he just hit it with the inside of his foot. The fourth. Yeah, that's my favorite one. But maybe the two most iconic Brazilian goals of the tournament have been scored by a player who often, well, certainly when he was at Everton, was not this kind of player. He, you wondered if he was Brazilian at all. He was, he was much more combative, run the channels, end up out wide, you know, not, but like the, the, the goal he scored, um, Richarlison I'm speaking of, obviously. Thank you. But the two goals he scored have been... It's as if when he pulls that yellow on, he be, he assumes a different mantle. I mean, he would. I think he's got two of the top four goals of this tournament. One of which I think is the goal of the tournament, the one that he had back in the group stage. But the one he scored today, yeah. Oh my! Just the combination just the from the way it begins with like yeah. head you know, juggling, him, him juggling to just the quick, almost Spanish tiki-taka-like passing around the box. And then, it, of course, it's got to come back to him for the finish. It was just, from beginning to end, it was just, it was beautiful. Uh, it's Again, it's it's like, it's what you want to see when you turn on the TV in a World Cup and Brazil are playing. And, and nobody's fooled, or nobody honestly thinks that they can keep playing at this pelt with that, like, they're, they're going to run into some teams that just simply will try and make sure that that, doesn't happen but today they met a team that probably you know gave everything it had to get out of the group i mean the emotional and physical toll of what south korea did across their three games was was probably a lot and they did i i don't want to make the excuse excuses for these players and i'm sure they wouldn't want to hear them but they did they did seem like wiped they they seemed this seemed it was just like the wrong time to be playing a Brazil full of full of such elan and also having Neymar return too. It's like no, I felt I felt really bad for South Korea and I'm glad they got a goal. That was that was important. Not just some goal. What a beauty! Yeah, it was I a mean, good strike. In, in, in another a... world, if that's like a competitive close game and that goal happens, it's it's an unforgettable moment. That's not to say Allison didn't have saves to make. Um, in the first half, that one he pulled out. Was it Cho or Sun hit it? 
and he's just tipped it over the bar. That, that one was heading for the top corner. Uh, second half, Brazil definitely took their feet off the pedal a bit, oh, yeah. um, which is to be understood. And then so there's, a, there's a lot going on in terms of um, disrespect. Disrespect has got to be a word that's trending now. Um, because of the Brazil celebrations, which we'll get to in a second. But I think the most disrespectful thing, or maybe not disrespectful, that's not the right word, but um, I heard Tim Vickery talking on OTB this evening, and he said, in the second half, it was an exhibition game. And it really was, because Brazil are subbing in their third uh, choice goalkeeper just so he can get a game. So now everyone in the squad has had a game. Yeah. Which I actually think is fine, for the most part, but... um, just maybe it didn't have the edge of the earlier round of 16 game between Japan and Croatia. So it didn't have the jeopardy of that. So you saw a lot of things that you thought, Ugh. yeah, yeah. Uh, I still enjoyed it thoroughly. Before we get to the disrespect thing, uh, just one note, Neymar converting a penalty today, which by the way, I did not think was a very good one, but sometimes the keeper goes the wrong way. And you, I thought you it was good. Are, you're kind of let off the hook for it. I just, that run up, I'm never going to like that run up. It's no, just never going to be for me when a guy comes to almost a complete stop. Um, I don't know. And then kind of weakly takes it. It was pretty centrally located too, but I guess he, maybe he juked the keeper to go the wrong way. I don't know. But at, you at are, any rate, you have a real conservative bent when it comes to penalties and I applaud you for it. I mean, I'm right. I'm correct. Guys who, uh, there must be a statistic out there to back me up that guys with that kind of run up convert at a lower rate than guys who just like stand there three yard, four yards back, whatever it is, five yards back and then run up to the ball and and hit it with confidence. The run up, uh, it's not for me. If I were a manager, you can have a seat right next to me on the bench with that kind of run up. Uh, but I should say, JJ, according to uh, Opta Zhao, Neymar has become the third Brazilian player to score in three different editions of the World Cup. Do you want to guess the other two? I would say it's very guessable. I wouldn't think too hard. Pele. Mm-hmm. Uh, scored in three different editions of the World Cup. Yeah. Uh, then. Probably um, original Ronaldo. That's correct. 98, 2002, and 2006. That is correct. Now, Mm. to the disrespect element of the podcast, can we play a new game? Uh, I I saw a quote today. Okay. I thought, there's a game to be played here. And listen, we got to reintroduce our games. We've lost all our games. I know. I know. Got to get the games going. We'll bring them back. Um, You know, what I was actually thinking, JJ, uh, while you're talking about the games, like now that we are doing more podcasts on YouTube... I am going to get an actual wheel. I'm getting a wheel, and we're going to play wheel of football the real way. So just I, just know I, that everybody. Listen, I applaud that. I absolutely applaud it because we used to pretend we had a wheel at ESPN. Whoa, uh, your insistence on pulling back the curtain. Sorry, <laughs> it's disgusting. We had anyway, a wheel. So, <laughs> so here's here's the the new game. It's called on brand quote. It's where somebody says something that is just so on brand with their personality that all I should have to do is read you the quote and you should be able to guess who it was that said it. Do you want to play? Oh, absolutely. This is a game, uh, I think it's perfect for this pod. Okay, so here's the quote in reference to Brazil and their celebrations after some of their goals. This person said, I think it's disrespectful dancing like that every time they score. I don't mind the first jig or whatever it was for the first goal, but not every time. It's disrespectful. Even their manager gets involved. I don't like it. Who would have said that, that you would think, yeah, I could see that coming out of this guy's mouth? <laughs> uh, this is an easy enough one because the fact he's used the word jig uh, suggests a part, certain part of the world. I'd say that's uh, Roy Keane. You did it. You're right. TV. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I um, 
the only thing more objectionable than what he said, and I don't think what he said was particularly objectionable. We'll get to that in a second. But people's reactions. Now, I, I can, if you're 17, 18, 19, 20, mid-20s in Brazil, you don't know who Roy Keane is. The Roy Keane era passed you by, or you weren't alive for it, or whatever. Um, so they are obviously upset with what he said, and he's, he's getting it a little bit from, from Brazilian Twitter, which is odd. Um, but, but people who do know who he, who he is and are like, you know, calling him joy police and all this stuff. Have you like, are you familiar with, with Roy Keane and his brand and the things he says and the way he was as a player? And I actually believe he, I, I think he believes that. I don't think, I don't think this is necessarily playing to the gallery. I think he doesn't like what happened. And I'm, I, I'm okay with, um, see, See, the first thing I did when, when the 1914, uh, when Bebeto scored against uh, Holland and they did the little... They rocked the baby. Loved it. Loved it. And went out into the yard as a kid and did it. So, like, I don't mind that part of it. But there's just a point at which you're like, oh, God, guys, stop. You know what I mean? Like, we get it. All right. It's not so much that it shouldn't be done or it's verboten. It's that you probably should have a bit of self-awareness and stop doing it. And I didn't love that Chiche got involved uh, doing the uh, pigeon, which is okay. uh, Richarlison's celebration. I didn't love it, but I don't. I didn't feel as strongly about Roy Keane about it. Yeah, I guess the way I feel about it is this: like when I when I'm when I'm a neutral fan watching it, it doesn't bother me. When oh. I'm invested and you do it against my team, it does bother me. Mm. So when I think about that, I think, okay, why is that? So one of those is an emotional reaction. The yeah. other one is a non-emotional reaction. And so which one of those is correct? I tend to lean with whatever my non-emotional reaction is. That's probably the one that is more in line with how sure. I feel. Yeah. Uh, so like if it's happening against you, I like, of course, yeah, I'd be, I don't want to see somebody celebrate like that at my expense. Um, so I get that side of it, but like how you feel about a thing in an unemotional moment is probably the way you truly feel about it. That's what I, I also, I also think as well, Roy Keane's a pundit. So, like, he's given his opinion and what he feels about it. And this is a man who apparently, and this story seems to be true, decided not to sign Robbie Savage because when he went through to his voicemail and Robbie wasn't there, Robbie's voicemail was, What's up? <laughs> I, you've told that story before, and I love that story. And Keen was like, no, I'm not signing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing I will say about it um, that I, I agree a little bit with what you're saying. You didn't phrase it quite this way, but maybe it's what you mean. Um, I'm not offended by it. Like, I don't no. find it like offensive in any way. But the, sometimes when I'm watching it, not just in soccer, but in the NFL after certain yeah. end zone celebrations, I sometimes do find myself, again, not offended, but feeling like you don't look as cool doing that as you think you do. Oh, 100%. Yeah. That's that's kind of how I feel sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I had, and I love Daniel Sturridge at Liverpool, but that celebration after a while was like, ugh. And I always tell the story where I was beside the American fan who was wearing an England jersey, but also was cheering for Italy when England played Italy in 2014. He just loves the sport. Just loves the sport, JJ. That's okay. Unbelievable levels of, of football schizophrenia. And um, and he's beside me. And um, I think I think England hit the front or the equalised. Can't remember. And as the ball, as Sturge puts the ball in, it was a really nice goal from a Rooney pass, I think. He shouts at the top of his voice, Do the dance! 
<laughs> like that. <laughs> and I just went like this. I went. <laughs> like all he wanted was for everything that these guys usually to do. You know, it was like he was watching the, you know, when you're a kid and you, you play FIFA. Yeah. Oh my God, that looks really like the guy or whatever. This uh, fellow, all that's all he wanted was replication of what he saw week to week in the Premier League. Yeah. Do the dance. And I'm do like, oh my dance. God, Jesus. That's funny. Uh, let's see. Let's continue now uh, to Japan and Croatia. Uh, whew, what a game. I mean, tense, uh, on a knife's edge, pretty well played, I would say. Uh, and in the end, it is Croatia who prevail. After all, it is a match that went to extra time. And when that happens, they, they tend to win. I think that's now seven straight. The last seven uh, games for them in major tournaments that have gone to extra time, they have won. That's, when I saw It's incredible. Ex- well, yeah, so I really enjoyed this game. I thought Japan were excellent throughout. I thought Croatia maybe at times shaded the game, and Japan definitely tired in extra time. Like they really looked like they were struggling. But when I saw it was going, when it was clear this this thing is going to extra time, I just looked at Luka Modric, and all I can think of, uh, like the man played almost a full game extra in the 2018 World Cup because of the extra times that they played in the run up to that, and I thought. Yeah. What was the Family Guy where they they made the joke about the Hollywood actress or model who who was so worn down and thin that she slipped between the floorboards? Kate Moss. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> that she got lost. She just slid between the cracks in the floorboards. I look at, at, at Luka Modric and I think by the end of his career he's going to be worn to this nub. Like he'll be, you won't be able to see him if you look, to, uh, look at him from the side. And he's just going to fall. He's just going to get trapped under some floorboards for about ten years. Luka Modric missing. What happened to Croatia's greatest footballer? But yeah. um, I felt for him, and he got hooked. Yeah, in the yeah, second, had- he was he was exhausted. He was exhausted. He's like thirty-seven. I can't keep doing this, guys. We came off, and um, and was, so first of all, like Japan, they hit the front. Uh, Maida scores, and. Um, like, they looked really, really good. Croatia came back well. Perisic, we've seen some Balkan headers in the last few days, Andrew. And Mitrovic's header, which we didn't really get to talk about because of your angst after the US game, but sure. it's, it's as good a goal as you're going to see. And Perisic, I mean, fantastic. Like Croatia, I wasn't sure about them, but like they just have a way of, keep, of, of, of winning and getting through these games and at times playing brilliant football. And they're resolute at the back. I know they conceded, but still. Uh, and then we go to penalties and uh, Japan just fall apart. Like if there's fatigue, mental fatigue, they had everything in their legs. The worst penalties I've ever seen. It was horrifying. 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 Bad. Yeah. I mean, now I will say, um, Livakovic did have to make, uh, the, the second one that he saved in particular, I thought was a genuinely good save. He had to go mm. full stretch reach his arm out as far as he could to knock it away. How um, good was so, his technique on the line as well? Amazing. I was going to point yeah. that out too. Like the, He ended up taught. forward towards attacking the ball coming in and yet starting when that ball was struck, his trailing leg, he had a foot on the line. That was that was very, very good. Yeah. It should be taught in schools, not just in soccer practice. I mean, in actual school. Like, okay, <laughs> we're going to learn how to do grammar now, and now I'm going to show you this video of Livakovic saving penalties at the – 2022 World Cup. He's the the uh, the third goalkeeper to make three saves in a single World Cup penalty shootout. Do you know the other two? I'll tell you this: they're they're somewhat recent. They've both happened since 2000. Did Casper Schmeichel do it? No, he didn't. No. Wow. 
They're since 2000 at the World I'll Cup. I'll give you a hint. I don't know Go if this on. will help you or not. I believe one of them you and I watched together at Michael K's barbecue at his house. Oh, wow. Was was that not Denmark versus... Go, yeah, come on. Was it, was it Croatia? Yeah, Subasic, Subasic. in 2018. Okay. And the other is uh, Ricardo for Portugal in 06 against England. Oh, wow. And and he scored one, didn't he? Or was that the... I thought that was in the Euros. Did he score that one was in, in the 06? In the 04 Euros. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those two. So Croatia added again. Um, a new keeper this time, but same story. Uh, I, they're amazing. dangerous, Andrew. I'm not sure if they're going to go all the way. I would doubt it, but they you know, are just dangerous. It's interesting in looking at Croatia because um, they always kind of carry a bit of a dark horse label with them. Um, but if you look at this current generation of players, like, you know, we talk so much about Belgium's golden generation, but you could really say that Croatia uh, have one as well when you go through the personnel of, of the past few major tournaments for them. And I do wonder, JJ, um, like the focus on Belgium and whether or not they, they validated their golden generation. And we're not sure uh, if Belgium had had the same exact results that Croatia have had. I think everybody would be saying, yeah, Belgium, they, they validated their generation. But we, I feel like with Croatia, it slides under the radar. Which is probably really unfair. No, it's, it's going to be a heck of a task to get past Brazil. But they're not going to make this easy for the Brazilians. No. No, they're a tough out. They they are absolutely a tough out. How That'll much do you love Guardiol as well? Apart, oh, I love man. saying his name. Yeah, I mean the the tackle that he made in the uh, in their last game was like that's like if you're a defender, that's like the stuff again taught in schools. Okay, <laughs> math class. Now we're going to teach Guardiol's tackle last ditch effort. Hey, I love your curriculum. <laughs> the the yeah. school board meetings will be difficult. Um, my child can't read, can't write, but can tackle like Gvardiol. Yeah, I don't even know what Gvardiol is. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's continue now, JJ, and let's go. Um, a couple things from the last couple days at the World Cup. England, they uh, they roll past Senegal. Uh, France yeah. get past the pesky Poland. Uh, I do. I want to touch on England first, um, because I saw an interesting quote come up from Declan Rice. Um, which I'm, I'm sure you'll have nothing at all to say about this. I can't imagine you having any opinion on an England player kind of whining about the way their team is covered. Uh, Declan Rice said this. He said, I don't think we get the credit we deserve in our performances. If you look at other teams like the Netherlands and Argentina, they win their games comfortably and they get called masterclasses. With us, it always gets picked off. The negative things always come that way. Uh, if you look at the last couple of games, it's been faultless. I think countries should be starting to fear us now because we're a great team. Oh, Declan. Well, first of all, let's 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 pick that apart. Like the games going into the World Cup weren't good, so they got criticism. They hammered Iran. Uh like and and the 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 Iranian game was one of those games where they were given absolute praise afterwards. Look at the way England have thrown off the shackles and scored six goals against this team. So they got loads of praise there. They were booed off against the US. Because it wasn't a particularly good performance. They beat Wales handily. They had 40 minutes against Senegal, which was desperately poor, and then scored three excellent goals and really started to play. And I think everyone acknowledged that. So, like, 
I'm sure Declan likes a kind of a, maybe a siege mentality. Like lots of players love that. Us against the world. Why not us? You know that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but I, I, there's not there's not a whole lot in what and and Declan Rice is playing in an era where where England is covered much more fairly, I would say, by the press than it ever was for many other managers. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't think there's you don't think in there's that. a little bit of when they play really well, it's oh, but look who they played. Uh, when they go far in tournaments, it's you know yeah, but they had the easy route. But I mean, those um, things are true. Those things are true. But like I mean, that's true a lot of times. Like no one like, is really no one is talking about Brazil today. Saying I mean, that, look at the group. That oh, came you know, to- yeah, but it was South Korea, a, a, a white South Korea team that uh, exerted well, all. The, just, like, people are I saying mean, like, oh, Brazil were were Brazil to like what we just said. I'm I'm giving them credit for when when England opened up. I mean, that first goal, the run by Bellingham, who's who's growing into this tournament. I mean. What a fantastic... I mean, he's the heartbeat of this side. He's the absolute fulcrum of the team. Um, you know, I, everyone's... The praise for him, he's going to be the best player in the world. You're seeing all sorts of stuff. So, no, I. it depends what you're listening to and who you read, I guess. Um, I'm listening to ba- you, and I've heard quite a bit of England criticism over the last few uh, tournaments. I think it's been fair. I think it's been fair. But I will say that after the first goal at the weekend, I was very, very impressed with the way they played. I thought they were they were excellent. And, and the goals they scored were I'll tell fantastic. you what, the uh, the Kane goal in the Senegal game, that felt like a Brazilian goal. Bellingham through the middle, gets it to Foden, mm. one touch to Kane, smashes it home. I mean, were, if were, we're talking... some fun goals. If we're talking Bellingham and Foden, now it's an unfortunate situation that scene... One of his, I suppose, his his generals being removed um, and having to go home in, in, t- in terms of Southgate and Sterling. Sterling had to go home for family reasons. Oh, what a horrible a, story. Yeah, an armed raid on his home while his family were there. It's just despicable. So that's terrible. But Foden's in there and he's locked in there after that display. There's no way they should change this. There's, there should be no mount. There should be none of that. Foden, clearly, uh, the player in form and the player playing well. But Bellingham has illuminated this side. I mean... <laughs> He's he's been absolutely uh, absolutely brilliant, and it's going to be a long, long summer of of Bellingham chat. Um, oh, it, yeah. It's interesting, um, Andrew. Looking ahead to the French game, though, have you noticed how this game is being distilled um, into a very kind of narrow talking point? No. Well, it's basic. Me. It's basically Mbappe versus Walker or Mbappe versus England, and the general consensus is that England versus France is pretty even per, you know, and you could argue both teams are pretty even, but then when you have Mbappe, that is the key, and stopping him is what's going to win the game for England. So I was was just read. What's that? I said, good luck with that, stopping Mbappe being the key for England. No one can stop him. He's the best player in the world right now. Right. So I went to the... uh, to the tabloids in England and to some of the some of the better tabloids, I guess. And I was just looking at, you know, who is really writing about this. And the Express newspaper in London caught my eye with a, a little cheeky tabloiding of some quotes. So, uh, Poland right back Matty Cash believes his Premier League counterpart, Kyle Walker, could be the player to stop Kylian Mbappe at the 2022 World Cup. It's the battle on everyone's lips ahead of England and France's mouth-watering quarterfinal clash on Saturday. So here's the quotes. I think this is talking up quotes. 
Kyle Walker's got got way more experience than me, said Cash, so I don't need to tell him anything. He knows Mbappe is amazing, but I think Kyle Walker is England's best right back. So if anyone's going to stop Mbappe, I think he's the man to stop him. Yeah. Kyle Walker is brilliant and he's rapid as well, but Mbappe is on a different le- in, on a different level by far. It's not it's not exactly a ring endorsement. No, it's saying that Kyle Walker is. Matty Cash is basically saying, "Look, Kyle Walker is very very good, but Mbappe is on a different level." And Kyle yeah. Walker is going to have to be very good to stop him. Yeah, they're um, they're reaching with when they pull that message out of that quote. Yeah, like, they I see really where were. they got it from, but it's a it's a reach also. It is a reach, but I, I honestly, I and just for France, in terms of France, like it's not it's not entirely fair just to talk about Mbappe, um, because Antoine Griezmann is flying like a B two stealth bomber in this tournament. Um, Anru Menon was uh, writing about this for ESPN. Um, he said, you know, with N'Golo Kante gone, Pogba gone, um, you know, the middle of the field is kind of really important. So he said, which is why if you keep an eye out for him, you can often see Griezmann everywhere in Qatar. At times he's just behind Giroud in the hole pulling the strings. At others he's carrying the ball out of defence or he's out wide maintaining shape as one of Dembele or Mbappe goes marauding inside or running it out of the edge of his own box, dribbling directly into the opposition third, or he's making perfect tackles inside his own box and pinging it out of the back like a deep-lying regista to help set up a goal. He has been brilliant. And again, there's a lovely um, a lovely uh, cut of all his plays against Poland. Um, I, I, like Just like it's unfair to distill England down to like Harry Kane, I think it's wrong to distill France just down to Mbappe. Mbappe is the standout player without question, but Griezmann's having a great tournament. You're right. Olivier Giroud as well. I mean, there's a lot of guys on that French team that have stepped up their game with all these injuries that they've been faced with. Guys were going to have to get better, and, and it's happened. I think. I mean, look, it makes sense simply because um, Mbappe has just he's taken the tournament over. Like, to, just the way he's playing, the way he... The goals that he scored, they've been so impactful. Uh, Julian Loren tweeted this, JJ. um, Kylian Mbappe has now scored 16 goals in his last 14 caps for France. Two incredible finishes today. Five goals already in this World Cup. Nine and 11 World Cup matches overall. 33 goals and 63 caps. And he is still only 23. Just incredible. Um, I think it's just like the combination of how young he is how fun he is to watch the team that he's doing it for the fact that he's already got one of these trophies to his name where he was probably you know the best player on that team and now like just we're watching him kind of build this this legend right before our eyes and and you know it's a story that everyone's going to gravitate towards he's just magnetic when he's on the field and um i mean both his, his goals against Poland were awesome he's uh he's incredible so i understand why he has been made the focus i mean that's it's mm. what we do right like you kind of look sure. at who the best players are and we gravitate towards them and he's he's not only been france's best player he's been the best player in this tournament like i said before i think i think right now he's the best player in the world uh with how he's going the way he so, smashed that goal as well though the one into the top corner where he, he almost just stands over the ball we had all day so weird of like of all the guys to leave for that but like what yeah i mean you're frozen there if i go to him what happens does he turn me if he gotta do something yeah um he's like i thought cash done all right opening 15 minutes on him but um there was one cut in the first half where you're like oh 
So he's come in on his right, and I, for all the world, I think he's going to like try and pass it or curl it into the bottom corner with his right. And he cuts to go back onto his left, and he he literally turns Cash around. Like if if this was if this was a Warner Brothers comedy, he would have spun him around and he would have drilled himself into the ground <laughs> until all you could see was Matty Cash's head above the turf, like a screw, like Wiley e. Coyote. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Scary stuff. Yeah. Uh, fascinating game. I mean, uh, up to this point in the tournament, probably excluding U.S. games, probably the game I'm most excited for is this one. Oh, I'm. Uh, I can't wait for for the Dutch and Argentina. Oh my God, Andrew. That is just. It's World Cup royalty. It's Friday two o'clock. Get off work early, guys. Oh, I can't. I cannot wait. Cannot yeah. wait. Yeah, it's also a great matchup. I mean, all of oh, them that, so far. That gives you strong feelings. Strong feelings. Um. Yeah, I, I. I mean, I would agree that one is also great. I think I'm just because of. I just want to see Argentina Brazil in the semifinal, and so it's not that I'm overlooking the Dutch. Like their performance against the U.S., I thought was really impressive. Like they're clearly better than I think we than a lot of people gave them credit for. Um, but I don't know. It's not. It's just not the matchup that I most want to see. I just want to see that Messi versus this Brazilian side, the storylines around that, the rivalry between these te- those teams. I, that's I'm already looking forward to that. that I don't, and a... I kind of don't want the Dutch to spoil that for me. <laughs> oh, but when you see LVG, he's so happy. Like, well, I, for him, I, I care more about myself, all right? I'm more worried about my happiness. Okay, well, fair enough. But I, I love seeing him go through like a drunk uncle doing selfies on the way back to the hotel after the U.S. game. That was very cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. Before we continue, JJ, I just want to tell you something. Did you, uh, did you happen to know this? This podcast is sponsored by DraftKings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you do now. The best soccer teams in the world are competing for the cup. DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is where to go to bet on the tournament. New customers can bet just $5 on any team and get $150 in free bets if your pregame Moneyline bet wins. For even more action, go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, toggle on the same-game parlay feature, and combine multiple bets for a shot at an even bigger payout. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use code OFFSIDE, Kick in $5 on any team and get $150 in free bets if your pregame money line bet wins. That's code OFFSIDE only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus issued as free bets. See state-specific responsible gambling resources and terms at DraftKings.com slash soccer. JJ, I have uh, some of the, the World Cup player props here for this tournament. Uh, top scorer, Mbappe, he's running away with it. He's the uh, huge favorite here, minus 165. After him is Richarlison at plus 650, uh, then Messi at plus 1,000. So we'll see. I mean, look, if England are to knock off France, then I guess Mbappe could be caught. But it feels like as the further France goes, it feels like he's just going to rack up such huge numbers. Um, so we'll see. Maybe he'll make a run. Who was it, J.J., uh, that we talked about before the tournament for France that scored 13 goals in one tournament. Maybe Mbappe can Just make a run. Fontaine. That, that's right. Maybe he can make a run for that one. 
uh, if he keeps going yeah. like this. Just a mess. Like Mbappe has scored five at this point. What like for Juiced Fontaine to have done that? I, like I'm watching Mbappe being like, I don't know how you can be better than this. But like that guy scored thirteen in one World Cup. Too much. Juiced was t- Juiced was just being greedy. Yeah, you're right. It was. It was greed. It was uh, pure greed. So, yeah, go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app. There's anything you'd want to bet here on around this tournament. It's all here for you. So check it out. And, um, and yeah, you can get invested in some games that maybe you wouldn't normally be quite as invested in. Let's continue now, JJ. We'll get to Danny Higginbotham in just a sec. Um, before we do that, the U.S. men's national team, I think a lot of American fans across the country are still uh, kind of letting the dust settle from this tournament run from these last however many years of preparing for this moment and this tournament, and now it's over. It's over just like that. Um, and so we've all had a lot of time to think and think and think. Um, and so I've kind of just a couple quick questions here that I kind of want to roll through. Like I said, we'll continue to pick this apart in the weeks and months to come. But um, now I want to start with the good stuff, the things that I come out of this tournament feeling good about. There's been a lot of time to, to harp on the negatives. We kind of know what a lot of those are. We can still discuss them. Um, but there's a few, there's a few good things that I just, I don't know. I don't want them to get lost in the shuffle of all this. Um, I have a few, I don't know how you want to do this. Do you want to go back and forth? You want me to roll through what I have? You, you steer the ship here. You, you tell me, you, you, uh, you go on your little tirade. Okay. I've got some things here. The first one, (laughs) I want to, I want to put this out there that I do come out of this tournament feeling good about Christian Pulisic. Um, look, we've. We always believed in this guy's ability, um, but like, you know, we've talked about it so much. Seeing him so frequently on the bench at Chelsea, it can sometimes like mess with your head. Like, it causes you to question, like, well, is he that good? Like, if he were that good, he'd be playing, right? Like, what's what's actually going on here? And you know, we had the moments during qualification. Remember, JJ, there was the one window where you could just see like he wasn't right. Yeah. Um, and so, like, that stuff kind of starts to seep into your your brain a little bit, but I come out of this tournament, man, two men of the match performances for him in four games. One of the biggest goals in U S men's national team history, uh, consistently being the player who's kind of posing the most danger for us moving forward. I don't know. I, I come out of this tournament feeling genuinely good about the guy. I hope whatever happens next with him is, is the right move. Um, I don't know if that can be staying at Chelsea. Um, you know, it's obviously not Tuchel there. It's Graham Potter, but that hasn't necessarily given him a direct line into the, the starting 11. So I don't know what it is, but I come out of this tournament feeling validated that, no, he really is that good. Like, I really think he's that guy. Uh, and so I just hope he can he can be someplace where he can show that more consistently because it doesn't – it's not happening there. And that's it's important for, for his growth. And, you know, I just – as a fan, I just want to see it. I just want to see it. Um. JJ, another one I have here, the MMA midfield. Uh, Adams was tremendous in this tournament, save for one moment, which I'm sure he'll wish he could have back and which he'll definitely learn from. Um, you know, as a player, as a leader, feel great about that guy. McKinney had some moments at this tournament where I thought he really delivered, like the ball he put in the desk to kind of get the hockey assist for the Pulisic goal. Uh, and remember, like, I still don't know that he was anywhere near fully fit. Like, he was hurt leading up to this tournament. We did a podcast two weeks before the, the squad was announced where we weren't sure that he was a sure thing to be included. Uh, so, you know, I, I come out of this feeling good about him and, and Musa as well. JJ, I saw a clip of Dax McCarty. He was on Men in Blazers, um, and he was saying he thinks Musa is going to break Pulisic's record for most expensive American player. 
Now that seems tough for me for a guy who's not really going to be a part of like goal scoring highlight reels. But the point is the is well taken that you know there's a, there's a level of talent there um, that you know for a player that age you mm. should be excited about. Could you could you envision like, could you see that? Could Musa be like an eighty million dollar player? I mean, certainly, you know, if you look at his age, you look at his engine in games, he could do that. I mean, it's funny to see Arsenal in for him, um, you know, considering, like, in, it, clubs in England were well aware of him and he was on their radar. He was He's had trials with so many and spent time at some. So it was kind of, it was interesting for me to see that, oh, he, he's gone to Spain now and he's doing quite well. Um, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Um, I'd need to see more games from him, and he would need to be, you know, a bona fide lock number, you know, player that starts at his club. But I could see it, yeah. certainly. He was very impressive. Um, this next one, not a huge surprise given the way we talked about him throughout the course of the tournament. I come out of this feeling great about Matt Turner. We have our number one keeper. End of the, deba- the debate is over. But now I'm really going to tap into my American brain, JJ. All right? And you... Okay. You need to be the person sometimes to reel me back in. But I don't know. Maybe you'll tell me, no, no, no. Dream big. Um, Matt Turner's performance in this tournament, getting to really kind of see it on display. JJ, should uh, should Ramsdale be worried at all? Like, no. could, could Is there a world where Matt Turner could unseat him? No. Okay. Reel me in. Reel me I, in, big I, guy. I, I don't see it. I, it doesn't mean that Turner hasn't played well, but... Ramsdale is the number one, and it's going to take a drop off in form from Ramsdale rather than anything that Turner's done to get him bumped into the number one spot for Premier League games. I think the best thing is that he plays regularly in the Europa League and gets a move away. I guess my my question is just you're right, like, but how much better? Like, what is the gap between Ramsdale and Turner? I feel like after watching this tournament, it's not as far as whatever we thought coming in. I, I think Ramsdale is. I think he's still significantly better with his feet. Hmm. I I mean that's from what I from what I can tell. Yeah. Significantly, and that would that would be a big big. I thought, Matt, uh, I thought Matt Turner's feet were just fine in this tournament. I don't think they're at that level. Um, but that doesn't know. mean he can't be a number one somewhere else. It doesn't I have to know be. If I was ready to hear this kind of criticism. Well, there's more coming, so <laughs> buckle uh, up. One other one for me. This is sort of my feel-good one. This has nothing to do with the future at all. But um, the last thing I come out of this tournament feeling really good about, I just love the Tim Ream story. And I kind of just, I enjoy the way it ended. Like, you know, despite how well he was playing at Fulham, like, he was kind of the example, JJ, of, you know, that cliche, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, I feel like that was kind of Ream. Like, anyone that had any of the stink on them of everything that happened pre-2018, you're gone. You're out. That's it. You can't be considered. And, like, he had probably resigned himself to the fate that his World Cup dreams had been dashed. But he just he just brought himself to a level of play at age 35 where they he, was, he left his manager with no choice. He had to be brought. And not only did he have to be brought, he had to be in the starting 11. And you know what? He validated all of those decisions. He was excellent in this tournament. Do I wish he had scored that goal in the 48th minute against the Dutch? At the, of course. But in terms of what he did defensively in this tournament, I thought he was exactly what we were hoping he would be. 
you know, we had said for a while, why are, why is he not a part of this conversation? Maybe it took, uh, I don't know. It took injuries, I suppose, for this to happen. You know, if Miles Robinson and Chris Richards were healthy, maybe Tim Ream doesn't get this chance. Um, but through that kind of good fortune and through just willing it himself by how well he played, I'm glad that he did get this, this taste of the world cup and that he made the most of it. It's a good story. And, and, you know, for a leader like him, um, I'm glad that this, I'm glad that it happened to him because, uh, he, he deserved it. I think he absolutely deserved it. So props to Tim Ream. All right. So now you said there's, there's more bad here. All right. Come on. Let's, well, it's, it's let's not, have it. It's, it's not bad, but I've been reflecting the last few days and listening to other people and listening to some of our listeners, although not to the listeners that say, you never talked about this when we definitely did talk about that. Um, and they've just repackaged it in different words. Um, like like uh, Edgy Jerner tonight, how do you guys not talk about player rotation during this tournament? Triple G set this team for failure in the last game against Iran. You Iran. definitely said that. Yeah, managers should be held accountable. Did he adapt to, to counter the Dutch press? No, I, I would agree with that. The in-game changes um, when when the Dutch went man for man, we were lost, definitely. Um, but I did talk about Iran. I, I did talk about the way that game finished. So I looked at it and just thinking back over the tournament, you know, Wales and Iran are literally two of the worst teams at this tournament. Like, there's no question. They're probably there and Qatar is just propping them up. They were very poor. We put in a great half against Wales. I couldn't finish them. Ended up tying the game. That was hugely disappointing. I think the big highlight was the performance against England. I thought that was really, really good. But again, no cutting edge. Um, we got a tweet from um, from King of the Animals, Newman. Uh, touch on this if you guys find it interesting. Uh, US men's national team only. No team crossed the ball more than the U.S. men's national team. Now, a cross doesn't have to be floated into the air. It can be driven along the ground. And and how many of those did we have that were cut out? Or, You know, it was obvious that we were going to get Dest and we were going to get Robinson forward. I'd love to see how many crosses Robinson actually delivered to someone into the box. You know, um, I, I thought with the way we managed the Iran game was we turned that into a, like a battle when it didn't have to be when we were in total control in the first half, keep playing the way you're playing. Instead, Greg went to a kind of a defensive stance midway through brings on Walker Zimmerman reinforces the back line. I understand that we actually don't have the depth on the bench. So if Weston McKinney puts his hand up or if you've decided you're taking him off after an hour, whatever time period we were taking him off over those games, he has to come off. Whoever's coming on isn't that good. I understand that. But I felt we seeded the initiative. We created a battle and we went into the Dutch game like emotionally and physically exhausted. And it didn't have to be that way. Um, but one point that came up to me uh, from a listener was this. And it's from uh, Steve True which is a very excellent second name. Um, I listen often and love your shows. Uh, generally, many of our key players are not full-time players despite playing on some very good club sides, e.g. Pulisic, Musa, McKinney, Reina and Dest. The playing time demands of World Cup may have stressed them more as they are not used to getting so many minutes so frequently. Definitely not the case of Reina, but I take your point. That could explain some tiredness in the round of 16 match. This same issue is also a factor as we think longer about the team. We need got more guys playing regularly at the top level, not just on the roster. Compared to players of many of the World Cup final teams, especially big ones, the US does not have the same kind of weekly demands on its players. That repetition at the highest level develops their soccer intelligence and it becomes innate. 
Now, there's some good points in there. Like, we, we, like Pulisic doesn't start for his club. Musa is getting more minutes than he has in the past, and he's younger, so that's a little bit different. McKenney has had injuries. He's struggled to start. Dest does not start regularly for AC Milan at all. And Reina has Reina issues in terms of injuries and minutes management. So, you know, th- that is a part of it as well. Um, so I'm not, I'm not pessimistic, um, but I do look back with a little bit of a colder, um, a colder eye on things. Um, Tristan uh, Atilano, just to balance it out, he said, I think we should be really proud of the US. I felt these guys matured a hell of a lot in the past year. Even though our finishing isn't where it needs to be, our attack and defence really stepped up in the past two weeks when I really wasn't sure it would. So, like, there are positives. So we were really resolute. That was great defensively. I liked the energy of the midfield. Um, but in attack, we were so often come up short and, and good moves that have been, that have been built through, through the field then kind of just fell away either at the end line or even cut back to nobody in the box. So, I don't know. I'm a bit more circumspect about it than I was, say, on Saturday. That's fair. Um, I, don't think any, again, I don't think anything that you're saying is off base. No, I'll and then that. again, look, football's football. And uh, Pulisic finds the top corner. That's a different game, but he did. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is valid. The main thing I have is just like, so what happens next? Like, I just think about, okay, this team now moving forward in the next cycle. Like, okay, we've got a Gold Cup, you know, one A-squad Gold Cup, presumably next summer, then maybe a B or C squad gold cup in 2025. There's no qualification for the 2026 world cup. So that wipes away all the key fixtures that this team would have growing together against, you know, at Canada, at the Azteca, Costa Rica, like those, the brutal away days in Honduras and El Salvador. There's none of that. It's all gone. Um, you know, 2024, we got to get into that Copa America somehow. Well, I, can I just, we need to point out, Andrew, how difficult that's going to be in Brian yeah. Scurretta. The 2024 Copa America is tough for the U.S. men's national team. People have to grasp the restrictions for guest teams in regional tournaments. Club teams are not required to release players for guest teams. Euro teams, Euro clubs rather, will be in preseason, MLS in midseason. Where will the players come from? Yep. I think it can be managed, it can be done, but it's going to take a lot of, a lot of bargaining. And, and we have to be admitted to it as well. Yeah. Uh, so... Like if well, not we, that, we like, if if so, like what is there? Like all these American fans that want to see more of this team, you know, not just about the fans, but like the team continuing to be able to grow together. Like, wh- what do we have now? You know, I'll be excited about the Gold Cup, especially the A Squad one. Um, you know, we'll get into the the UEFA Nations League. Although let's let's be honest with ourselves, none of us really get into that until we're into the semifinals of it. You know, so like. It's we're kind of entering, you know, a bit of like a, a wasteland um, in terms of what comes next until this next World Cup again. Like Gold Cup, sure, we'll, we'll, you know us, we'll be all in on that. But like, if there's no Copa America, you know, there's days of Confederations Cup. God, what I would give for that tournament to still exist. Jeez. Um, so like, that's my concern moving forward. Can um, can we address the one hundred and twenty five thousand pound elephant in the room? wearing Jordans <laughs> and, um, and committing errant back passes at the worst time. So a lot of our listeners are saying that there was a bit of 
being Greg apologists on Saturday's live stream, which people should go back and listen to and they can judge for themselves. Um, so where I'll just give you where I'm at. You can give me where you're at and then we'll get to, to Danny. But the way I feel is kind of, I saw a tweet from, I think it was Michael Goodman. You got to really love the manager or believe in the manager or for him to be irreplaceable to give him eight years. Do we honestly feel that way about Greg Berhalter? And I'm not so sure. You're giving this guy the peak years now, these next few years, the peak years of this team going into 2026. Like, is, is, is this going to get better under him? And I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. That That is fair. And I think we probably, in the moment, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, if somebody came away from that podcast the other day thinking that I was a Greg apologist, I could see why you would think that. I've had a some time now. I've had some time now to think more about it. I think here's where I come down on it. If he's not the manager moving forward, um, I get it. I understand it. And I will not, I would not fight that. I, I understand why that decision would happen. Um, but here is how I feel, though. Like, but I won't celebrate that. Like, I, I see the people on Twitter that have this sort of like good riddance kind of pose to to how they mm. feel about this. And like, if he's not the manager anymore, I understand that. But like, don't expect me to be like high fiving everyone when that happens. Like, I think that he's come in and he's done a he's done a fine job. Like. He rebuilt this program into something that is respectable and headed in the absolute right direction. And along the way, he didn't just rebuild it. He won stuff, stuff that we care about. So, like, okay, you have an issue that he didn't bring a certain player. You wish Joe Scally got more minutes in qualifying. Mm. Like, like these are things, sure, that you can have criticisms over. But, like, are these big enough reasons to just be, like, you know, setting off fireworks if the guy loses his job or doesn't get his contract renewed? Like, not to me. Like I, I kind of look at the, the totality of what's happened over the last four years, and I feel like it's been, you know, yeah, there were definite nights of frustration during qualifying, but it's been pretty good for where it was at when it was inherited. So, sure, totally understand if he if he is moved on. Um, but, like, I'll wish him the best, and I'll be happy that, like, that I'll look back on this time pretty fondly. Um, I will not view this as like a blight on the on American soccer culture like so many people out there do. I just I can't get to that place and I'm I'm not going to. No, I I do think that the general kind of the zeitgeist in America mistrust of, of institutions and, and ruling bodies has kind of got into US soccer as well. And the way, you know, he came in, the way he was appointed with his mm-hmm. brother being a high up executive in, in the USSF that rubbed people the from rubbed people the wrong way from the beginning, and he's been battling against that ever since. And then there's a lot, a huge cohort of U.S. soccer who have no faith in the domestic league, and that's all coagulated against him. So a lot of what we're the feedback we're getting now, um, it's not going to change while he's there. And um, I, I don't think I, I wonder does it factor into the U.S.S.F. decision, but. Um, I'm not so sure they want to move on from him. I have no idea. I couldn't even muster up a guess. Yeah. Um, we'll see what he wants to do. I mean, look, we view him a certain way, 
which in this country is not like his, his approval rating is probably not high. Um, but I don't know if that's how he's seen globally. He may have opportunities after this. Well, Garrett Southgate talked about how he had a better coaching credentials going into it than, than, than Southgate himself had. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? It may, it may be Greg's own decision that takes him elsewhere. I don't know. And I would also say before we get out, there's a lot of the names being floated. American names being floated by people that are not that palatable. Someone talked about, uh, again, uh, in our mailbag tonight, there was a mention of Jose Mourinho. And I think the amount of money, the amount of money to pay to bring him in, um, would he like not working day to day? Would he like months on end without dealing with the players? I don't think he would. Um, the tension he likes to create in the squads, how is he going to do that? Skype calls or Zoom calls? Is he going to Zoom Weston McKennie and tell him he's, he's, he's bad and then hang up? You know, like how does he foster that kind of unique environment that he's, he has everywhere he's gone? If my energy was starting to, to wane on the, the bear halter debate, JJ, I, I would be whittled away into nothing over, over what would ensue with Mourinho. I couldn't handle it. Now the argument that he'd be good for tournament football small tight windows negative football get results i i don't know but even some of the names from mls i'm like guys like yeah well i'll tell you what know. let's let's talk about some of this stuff uh some england as well but a lot of us men's national team one of our favorite guys honestly to have on this program a guy that we've had on a couple times in the past it's been some of my favorite conversations that we've had on this podcast the response from listeners have echoed that sentiment Back on the show now, you've heard him on Philadelphia Union coverage. You've heard him, of course, on NBC's coverage of the Premier League. And you've seen him in the Premier League in the past. Danny Higginbotham, back on the show. What's up, Danny? How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you both doing? We're doing great. I I mean, I'll just start with the most broad of broad. Like, this World Cup, I'm guessing we have been obviously infatuated with it. And we knew we would love it, but I I think it's even exceeded whatever I was hoping for. Are, Are you... You must be as into this as anybody, I would think. Yeah, I am. I think the the, the thing that's just taken a little bit of getting used to for me, because obviously it's the first time I've you know watched watched the World Cup being away from England, and and obviously I know the the time difference and what have you. So that's that's been a a bit of an adjustment, something to get used to, and obviously the time of the year as well, because you know we're only used to seeing the World Cup in the summer. So that's taken a little bit of adjusting. Some of the group games have been. Have been brilliant. There's been some shocks, but I love I love the stage right now, the knockout stage where it's just it's it's all or nothing. And there's been there's been some unbelievable games, and I think you know usually you may be talking about one or two teams that could potentially win the World Cup. You know, we, even at this last stage of of the tournament, potentially maybe four teams that could go in and win the World Cup. So I think there's still so much to play for, and some great games ahead as well. Yeah. So, Danny, before we get to a team, to the teams that can win the World Cup, what about a team that's definitely not going to win it? Uh, the United States men's national team exiting at the round of 16 game against the Dutch at the weekend. So, I think me and Andrew are in the same position as we're trying to look back on the four games that the US played and kind of situate how we feel about the campaign. Was it a good campaign? Was it a bad campaign? Uh, was getting out of the group enough? Did we fall really flat against the Dutch? Uh, where are you at with what you saw? Um, I think there's progression. I think you know, one hundred percent. There's been there's been progression. Obviously, I've been I've been following the US men's national team now for for the last few years and seeing the progression, seeing the young players come through. Obviously, there's a number of players now playing in Europe, which I think is invaluable. 
it's a relatively young squad, so at times you can be naive. That's that's nothing against the players. I think they'll be stronger for it for certain aspects of what happened at the World Cup. Um, but I think what we did see against the Netherlands was that there is, you know, there's a little bit of golf in class there. You know, you look at the Netherlands, they had a lot of experience within their team. And I look at the US and obviously getting the game back to 2-1 after going 2-0 down. I think the most disappointing thing will be the manner of conceding the goals because one of the mm. things that the US always do, they you know, they pride themselves on, on on defensively and the manner in which they conceded the goals, they were all very similar. You know, crosses coming into the box, men being beaten at the far post. And I think that would be the the big sense of frustration, but then obviously the other end of the pitch. You know, somehow some way you've got to go and find that centre forward and it's very difficult to do that. I think when when the, the US squad was announced, you know, you look at the squad and you think, yep, yeah, it's 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 a good squad. There's not really too many other people, too too many plays that you potentially put in there. But what the one concern for me wasn't necessarily the lack of centre forwards, it was the centre forwards are all the same. Mm. And the, the majority of them are, for want of a better word, false number nines. You know, I know you've got Hadji Wright, who who obviously he's a little bit different, uh, Sergeant, but still for me, it's much of a muchness. And it's okay playing with a false number nine when you're dominating games. But when you look at the game against the Netherlands, which it was going to be, the first goal was going to be absolutely massive. If the Netherlands got it, then they were going to sit back and say to the US, okay, well, you, you try and exploit us and we'll take advantage of you down the wings, which they did really well. Um, so I thought that, I would have played a natural winger at centre-forward in that game. I would have looked okay. at where and said, right, OK, we need you to stretch the game. Because one of the, one of the strong points of, of the US is the midfield three. You've got Musa, Adams, McKenney, you know, very, very strong three. But because there was nobody stretching the game for the US, they had no time and space on the ball. You know, the, the, the defence of the Netherlands was playing really high because they could afford to, because there was no one running in behind. So there was a knock-on effect to that which meant that US a lot of the time was spending large majority of the game in their own half and the centre forward in their own half. Nobody really running the other way. So that was probably something that I was a little bit surprised surprised at. But all in all, when you look at these players, obviously you've got you've got Reem, who I thought was outstanding throughout the tournament. Other than that, you look at the majority of the players and a, a large majority of them, they're not even at their peak yet. So for 2026... I think that's where the excitement has to be. Now, you need to have games going forward into that competition, which mean a lot more. You've got to have um, stronger opposition that you're going to be playing against. And then, you know, you, you can find yourself in a position then where, you know, you, you really start to ask questions and go deeper into the tournament, especially with the young players that are coming through now that haven't even been mentioned in, in this World Cup squad. So I think the future is bright. I think there's lessons to be learned from from this tournament, without doubt. But I think there's a lot of positives as well. Just to touch on something you said there, Danny, you know, meaningful games going forward. Like, we're going to have to manufacture something here, okay? Because the Gold Cup is probably not going to cut it. Mm. Uh, there's no qualifying. So how important is it that we either buy or wedge our way into wherever the Copa America is in 2024? I think it's, I think it's really important, you know, because we know what international football is like. You get together for for a short amount of time other than when you're at a major tournament. So therefore, therefore, the time that the manager and the coach gets to spend with the players is very limited. Now, if you're going to be playing in games where you're going to be scoring a lot of goals, there's not going to be that much competition towards you, then you don't really learn much. 
I think a manager, if you ask any manager, they will tell you they always learn more in defeat than they do in victory. And I think that's one of the things that the US have to do. But like you say, they have to manufacture that in a way where they can have this competitiveness. Because the last thing you want is, obviously, they've not got to qualify for the next World Cup. Um, So they're building towards that straight away. But you have to be at a point where you are tested at a consistent basis. Because then, you know, that that might make you want to change the system. It it, It might make you want to change certain players in the squad, certain positions of players in the squad. But I think in order for that to happen, and like I say, you have to have the utmost opposition as in terms of being tested as, as possible, so it becomes very difficult for you then. I'm telling you, let's get the Confederations Cup back. I'm starting a petition. I want everyone <laughs> to sign it. We need we need that competition to come back. Um, Danny, I'm going to dive right into the biggest lightning rod of all when we're talking about the U.S. men's national team, and that is the manager. And I'm so interested in your perspective on this Um because you kind of have a foot in both camps here. After the England match in particular, you know, JJ and I talked about this on the podcast that we saw a lot of praise for Bearhalter mm. among English media, you know, fans in England that don't really know too much about the culture here around soccer, how he's viewed over here. And I remember saying to JJ, boy, they're going to be stunned when they find out just how little so many fans think of him here. I'm kind of interested in hearing where you fall on that conversation. I think what what he did, he did an incredible job in getting the team to to the World Cup. You know, I think there was there was a lot of tricky games, there was a lot of um lineups that some people didn't necessarily agree with, but that but worked in their favour. You know, he he's got he's got a group of young players that are that are giving everything for each other, which I think is really important for a manager when, like I say, you have these players for a short amount of time. Against England, I thought they were outstanding. On another day they could have beaten England. So you give him a lot of credit from the way he set that game up because myself personally, what I've seen from the US, you know, more often than not, is a team that just goes for it and leaves themselves wide open to the counter-attack. And I honestly thought that that would be the case against England, but they didn't. They managed the game really well. They were disciplined. They looked at areas where they could get at England, you know, in the turnover, the transition in particular on the counter-attack. So you give Berhalter, I think, a lot of credit for that. But then the flip side of that is that that's how you should have played the Dutch game. That for me is how you play how you play against the Dutch because you're playing against a team that you know. Let if we've got to be honest here, the Dutch were huge favourites against the US, just like England. Sure. Were. Mm-hmm. Now the one thing, like I say, that I didn't understand with the lineup against the Netherlands, and listen. Berhal, what the job that he's done and everything, you know, he knows a lot better than me. But the one thing that I couldn't understand was playing with a, you know, what you would call, you know, I've seen Ferreira on numerous occasions for FC Dallas, and I really like him as a player, but he's a player that's going to drop deep and create space for the two wingers to go forward themselves. Now, I don't think that was going to be a possibility when you're playing against the Dutch because you don't need to drag the centre-backs out because they're already out. They're already playing a high line until they get that first goal. So therefore, all that happens is is that Ferreira ends up going into midfield, ends up getting dragged into getting dragged into the midfield because there's no real space, and then you've got nobody stretching the game. So from from that side of things, I expected more of a, a counter attacking game against the Netherlands like they did against England. Now, when you're looking at that, that's when you need, in my opinion, like I say, obviously it was a little bit different against England, but you need a centre forward that's going to go and stretch the game. Now. Mm. That's the centre forward that you're going to say, listen, you know what? For the first 30, 35 minutes, every time we get the ball, 
I just want you playing on the shoulder of the centre forward. The first 30, 35 minutes is not going to be from you. you for you. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get annoyed. Because all you're going to be doing is running and running and running and stretching yeah. the game. But when you will come into your own is all of a sudden when the Dutch midfield and defence say, we're not just going to keep running back. We, we keep having the ball played over our head, so we're just going to have to drop off. That's when Adams, that's when McKenney, that's when Musa, that's when Pulisic, that's when they are then afforded more time and space on the ball. It's like everybody says, you have to earn the right. Sometimes you've got to go long to come short. But I just feel that the Netherlands were able to play really high against the US because there was nobody really asking the question of a Timber, of a Van Dijk, of an Ake of saying, right, I'm going to try and get in behind you. And that was the one thing where I looked at and thought, that's where they could have taken advantage. And then a couple of times when we did see Weir drift into to the centre-forward position from the right-hand side, that's when a couple of opportunities came about. So that would be the only thing that I would say as in terms of the tactical aspect of the game. But I think all in all, when you look at what they did, I think a lot of people didn't even expect them to get out of the group because it, it, it was seen as a relatively tough group. Obviously, England, the favourites to go through. We know what Wales are capable of. Iran, they can upset a few as well. So, you know, the US got out of it and now their next step, the next step has to be, okay, well, when we've got it in four years on our, on our home turf, what were the mistakes that we made in this World Cup that's just gone by? What are the plays that are going to be available then? What system are we going to play that suits us and what can we improve? Danny, um, I, I can't get away from this. I, I watched the, the game over again and I don't want to be simplistic or anything, but like if, if Christian Pulisic scores that first one, mm. like the, the game is a totally different yeah. complexion. Like the Dutch were under a lot of pressure to start that game out. That goes in the back of the net. They have to come out a little bit more. They have to... Now, listen, I'm not saying we the US win the game. I'm not saying that. And I do think Van Hal really, like the man marking in midfield was yeah. excellent. The way that he had Ake or Van Dijk depending, like giving them some depth so they were never going to get done over the top anyway, even if there was someone there. Like there was always one hanging back. And, and, and their first goal was a brilliantly constructed move. It was one of the best goals of the World Cup. Mm. But that said, 1-0, it's a different game state. Um... So I suppose my question is, like, if we can't manufacture a striker, then, and it's something me and Andrew talked about, wherever Christian Pulisic goes, he needs to be starting, he needs to be the main man, mm. and he needs to kind of add goals to his game in a way that he's never done before, unless someone emerges in the next few years for the US. Yeah, one of the things which I found interesting is if you look at the teams that have had success um, nationally doesn't necessarily mean winning the World Cup, doesn't necessarily mean winning the Euros. But there's been, there's, there's been fundamentals throughout the group. So you look at Germany, I think the 2006 World Cup, they started to bring the younger players through. Belgium, you know, they've had their uh, golden generation. Nothing came of it. We've seen England now with, with St. George's Park, what they do. Um, we've seen it with Spain for a long time. We've seen it with France. And one of the things that, ten, yeah, yeah. So, so that's something that that we've seen from these more established countries in terms of of the world front. You know, the teams that we always see there or thereabouts when it comes to World Cups, when it comes to the Euros. Um, so, what you have to do, you have to look at it and think, right, okay, what's going to give us our best opportunity of producing a striker now? Could it be that there's a striker that's about to hit the scenes? Could it be that there's a striker out there that you know that, that has the US background that's capable of playing? For me personally, I'm not saying he would have been the answer in this tournament, but I thought Vasquez 
should have gone hmm. from yeah. Cincinnati. I thought he was, I thought he was brilliant this year, and he's very different than any striker that went with the US. It gives you something a little bit different. But as in terms of of going forward, I think obviously he's a player that that will have to be kept an eye on. But I remember speaking to the director of football, Stuart Weber, at, at Norwich City. And he'd had he'd had success first of all at Huddersfield, then he went to Norwich City. And one of the things I said to him, because I'm interested is in terms of academy and and how you play going forward. Because I've always been under the impression, well, if you play a four two three one or a four three three, whatever the system is, in the first team, now this can be national, can be domestic, then you play that all the way through. So everybody knows then when they come into the first team, whether it be domestic or whether it be for the national team, they know how to play the game. And he gave me a really interesting insight that I'd never thought of before. He, I said to him, because at the time um, they were playing under, I think it was Daniel Farker. And I said, obviously, do, do all the younger teams play 4-2-3-1? And he was like, no, up until under 23s, I think it is, we play 4-4-2. And I was like, well, why? Why are you doing that if the first team doesn't play that? He said, the most expensive players in the world are centre-forwards. The most difficult players to get are centre-forwards. The most difficult players to develop are centre-forwards. So we play with two centre-forwards. Hmm. And it gives us double the chance of producing a centre-forward. Are you saying that the trends now in European football, because it was an argument on Twitter that we... we- don't forget England, forget the US. There are no centre forwards being produced anymore. Like Holland and Kane are like two ends of a of a dying breed. So are you saying that the like the movement to having like a fluid front three, like what Liverpool operate, or sometimes what City have in the past mm. before they got Haaland, is that wiping out the centre forward? I think that it is now because when we talk about centre forwards, you know obviously yes you've got you've got Haaland, but Harry Kane's no longer this out and out centre forward now. He's a false number nine. You know, and then what you need then is pace either side of him that's going to get in behind. Now, when you are a team that is playing against opposition players that are sitting back, that's when a false number nine is brilliant. So if you look at the majority of teams that play with a false number number nine, whether it be national team, whether it be domestic, they're all teams that are more often than not winning things or the team that's going to dominate possession in games. Right. Barcelona did it for years. You know, Manchester City before Haaland did it. You know, Tottenham do it. Liverpool do it. They're teams that, that more often than not, when you look at the end of a game, I know it's a little bit different under Conte at, at, at Tottenham, but by and large, the teams that I've just mentioned, they're probably upwards of 65 70% possession in games. Now, that's not the case for the US. That's not going to be the case when they're playing in the World Cup. So therefore, a false number nine becomes pretty irrelevant because... You don't need a false number nine because a false number nine really is to drag a stubborn defence out of their position. It's to question a centre-back, is to say to a centre-back, okay, well, what are you going to do? Because I know as a centre-back, I always wanted somebody to mark. And if there was a centre-forward dropping off me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to edge forward a little bit and maybe try and mark him. Well, then all of a sudden that leaves space for your wide players to go inside. But that's not necessarily where the US are now unless they're playing against you know teams that they're absolutely going to dominate in possession. And a lot of the times with World Cups and the major tournaments, that's not going to be the case. So what what I would say, and like I say, it goes back to the conversation that I had with Stuart Webber, and I know it's more domestic it's more on the domestic side. Can you give yourself a better opportunity of producing another centre forward by potentially harvesting 
the, the age groups below the main squad where you potentially are playing with two centre forwards, then you've got double the chance. And mm. we know how good we're seeing now, especially with the team that, that, that I was covering, Philadelphia Union, the young American players that are coming through now. There's some exceptional talent coming through. There's no question about it. But the key to it is, is the centre forward position. And for me, the way that the US are at the moment and where they are on the world level, I still think it has to be not necessarily an old school centre forward, but, but a centre forward that can play on the shoulder, that can drive forward, that will bring the best out in a Pulisic who wants to drift into the number 10 or a McKenney who wants to drift into the number 10. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they go about that going forward. Uh, Danny, I know we want to get to a little bit of England with you as well, but I do have a couple more quick U.S. ones, mm. uh, both of which are kind of uniquely positioned to answer. I can really only ask this to a guy like yourself who's played at the highest level, mm. who's been in locker rooms. And, you know, it's about Bearhalter. I saw DeAndre Yedlin. Um, he had a quote where he really had Bearhalter's back. I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but... You know, Yedlin kind of went into this idea about the vibes of this U.S. team, that people kind of joke about how, oh, look how great the vibes are. They're all friends. But Yedlin says Bearhalter really did change the culture. Mm. He really got all these guys to kind of love one another. And so as a fan, look, I, I like knowing that. Like, it it's cool to see that they all hang out, to see that they enjoy each other. And, and like, trust me, I am, I am here for all of the behind-the-scenes content with this team. Mm. I love it. But... Like, just how important is it actually when it comes to them winning matches? Huge. Absolutely. Really? Okay. Oh, it's absolutely massive. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're, if you're a team that can have two or three match winners in it, you know, then maybe you can get away, get away with a little bit of it. You know, we, we've seen, we've even seen great nations over the last, over the last few years just really unfold on themselves. Belgium, to a certain extent, with all the stuff that was coming out, the falling out in the dressing room. I think it was France a few years ago. The Dutch have done it before. They've got world-class, phenomenal players. So it is really, really important. So when when a player comes out, no, no unsettled dressing room or very, very few unsettled dressing rooms will have success because it has to be built on that. Because when you go on that pitch... You have to be, yes, they're your teammates, but you have to have their back. Now, I've played with players that, and it's all about the mentality. I've played with players that, you know, had, had teammates on the pitch, didn't like each other. But when that whistle blew, everything was fine. But that's domestic, and that's a little bit different because you play a game, you go home, and then you go to training. When you're at these major tournaments, you are living with each other for however long you are there for. So it becomes really, really important. It becomes vital, and I think that stood out. You know, when you, when you saw the interviews with, with the U.S. players, when you sh- saw the togetherness on the pitch of these U.S. players, and I think one of the biggest things going forward for them, which is really going to help, is other than two or three of the players, they're all roughly around about the same age. Mm-hmm. So the experience from this World Cup is only, going to, is only going to bring them closer together, is going to help them going forward, and it's a group that can probably be together for the foreseeable future with, obviously... You know, a few additions, which I'm sure are going to come through from from the younger age groups in time to come. Uh, the other one I wanted to ask you that, again, you're uniquely positioned to answer. I'm not asking for any specific insight, if there's anything you know behind the scenes, but you're around the Philadelphia Union a lot. Mm. Um, and so I'm going to link that to the U.S. men's national team. JJ and I have been pretty supportive of Bearhalter, I would say. 
on the last podcast, we did a YouTube live stream. People could send in their questions in real time. And so we said, okay, fine. You all want to get rid of Bearhalter so badly. Who are the people? Who, who's coming in and coaching this team? Mm. Um, and so people were rattling off Nate Pochettino. We said, stop. Like, <laughs> but then finally, someone did throw out Jim Curtin. And that was really the first name that kind of caused me to take a, take a moment and kind of think about that. You're around the union a lot. You see the way he manages. You see his relationship with players. You probably have a sense for you know what he's all about. Mm. Could you see that? Could you envision that? I could definitely see it in the future. You know, I Jim Curtin has the world at his feet. You know, when you look at him age rise, I think he's only 42, 43. You know, he's 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 even my age or a year younger. I've I've had the pleasure of being able to speak to him every week over the last two years and, you know, spend a little bit of time with him. I cannot speak highly, highly enough of him and you won't meet anybody or I'm yet to meet anybody that has a bad word to say about him. Hmm. He is probably one of the most humble individuals I've ever met. Um, as a man manager, what he does to players, how he gets the best out of them, how he knows just how to get the best out of them, the way he is with younger players is magnificent. Now, obviously, you've got Berhalter. No one knows what's going to happen there. Nobody knows what's going to happen with, with Jim Curtin. Like I say, I think the world's, the world's his oyster. The job that he's doing at, is, that he's doing at Philadelphia Union, you know, it's people are starting to take notice now. So, yeah, it's I can't answer anybody's question, but I would imagine like, uh, if you look at something, you would probably think to yourself, oh, yeah, it would be an absolute dream to, to manage your own nation. You know where you where you're from, the, your, your country of birth. But the only other thing I would say when I look at Jim Curtin is that he's very young for a manager, and what he's done in such a short space of time, he's got an unbelievable career ahead of him. And I think it's all about what Jim Curtin wants to do next. I would love him to stay at Philadelphia Union for the foreseeable future because what he's done there and and how unfortunately they they lost MLS Cup at the cruelest the cruelest ways. Um, how they have sold players and replaced them and kept moving forward, how they've brought in players and solidified them into the team, integrated them into the dressing room. You know, I, I can't speak for Jim Kern. The only thing that I can say about him as a manager is that his stock is going to continue to rise. And he's one of the good guys and you want him to have all the success possible. And, and hopefully that will be with Philadelphia Union for the foreseeable future. And then who knows, but he's got so much time on his side, but without question, in years to come, he's, I think he's going to be, when you're talking to American soccer fans, he's going to be, he's going to be on the lips of most people um, just because of what he's doing in the game and the way he goes, goes about it as well. Danny, before we let you go, got to ask you about England. Mm. Uh, Cruise through against Senegal after... Not a great first half, but right at the end, really clicked into gear and looked very impressive after that. We've got the French coming up at the weekend. <laughs> What's your thoughts? Uh, Tough. I think I don't think there's there's any there's any question about that. I think England will go into this as as the underdogs, um, which is incredible when you look at the plays that France have got missing. You know, no Conte, <laughs> no Pogba, no Benzema. You know, there's just there's a span of your team missing. But then you look around, you've got Griezmann, you've got Mbappe, who's just been absolutely sensational this tournament. Rabiot, you know, he's come into his own. Giroud just seems to get better and better with age. Um, Dembele, they've just got incredible players. So I think what... Just so the end of the line for England, that's it. They're out in the quarters. No, no, no. I don't think so. 
I don't, I don't, I don't think they're out. I think it's going to be very tough. I think if you said to me now who's going to win, then I would probably just edge with France because of Mbappe. But I think the, what this England team is capable of, they will cause anybody problems. And one of the things that I've liked about this World Cup, which is something that I've seen different, I know they got to the final of the Euros and I know they got to the semi-finals of the last World Cup, but this is a team that what we saw in previous tournaments was them starting the games unbelievably well and then being pegged back and just about holding on where what I'm seeing in this team now is growing into the games and getting better. You've got Bellingham, who is having an incredible tournament. You've got Harry Kane, one of the best strikers in world football, only just starting to get going in the tournament. So it's going to be who can deal with, with, with each team's attack the best. So Walker, can he deal with Mbappe? We know he's got incredible pace. I think he's been a very, very unsung hero. Uh, for Manchester City and for England. But that's going to be a tough test for him. And then it's all about, can you likes of Varane and, and players like that, can they look after England's attack? So it's that's what it, I think that's what it's going to come down to. Who deals with the with the opposition attack the best? Because, you know, bo both of them have got unbelievable, you know, f power going forward. And we'll ask a number of questions. So... If I'm ruling, if I'm ruling with my heart, then I'm going to say England. If I'm ruling with my head, then I'm just going to say France. But it'll be a close game, and hopefully England can do it because if they can, then other than Brazil, I I just don't see who there is to fear for England because England will cause problems for anybody. Some cracking games coming up. Yeah, it really is. We're we're really getting to that stage. Here, yes, uh, especially with all the giants that are continuing to win. Uh, one other one from me on England. JJ mm. and I talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast, but I want to get your thoughts on it as well. Declan Rice had some interesting comments. I don't know if you've seen these yet. Um, he said, I don't think we get the credit we deserve in our performances. If you look at other teams like the Netherlands and Argentina, they win their games comfortably and they get called masterclasses. Mm. With us, it always gets picked off. The negative thing, uh, the negative things always come that way. Um, any validity to that? Are, are England, English media, do they hold them to some kind of different standard than they hold other teams to? Or is this a little bit of kind of just, you know, no one believes in us sort of rah-rah talk from a player? No, I, th I, think, I think there is plenty of belief, but I know, I know where he's coming from because, you know, the, the English press, they want, they want the English team. You know, they want the national team to be winning and, and, and firing all, on all cylinders on a continuous basis. I think the problem has been... Obviously, you go back to 1966, they won the World Cup. They've not won anything since then. Some of the teams that they've had going into major tournaments have been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And it's just not worked. And I think it's now the expectation level's okay. Well, now you're looking, you're seeing there's some great young players coming through now. And, you know, they're, they're starting to really show themselves on, on the biggest stage possible. But, you know, you go back to early 2000s and even like up to... 2009, 2010, you look at the players. You look at the players that were playing then. That, as, as good as this team is, that team was better then. And, you know, when you've got a midfield of Beckham, Scholes, Gerrard and Lampard, you know, and then you look, you've got Owen and Rooney up front. You've got the likes of Terry, Ferdinand, Cole, Neville. Mm. That's an incredible team. And they didn't, they didn't win anything, which for me is unbelievable. And, I would say that when you look at the way that they were set up, I don't I don't necessarily believe that it was 
the best setup for the players that were there to get the best out of the players. It was a case of a manager who had a system and said, right, this is a system I'm going to play and the players are going to have to fit into this. Whereas I look at now with Gareth Southgate, he's got a group of players and he's saying, right, okay, how can I get the best out of these players? And there's not really anybody that's playing in the team at the moment that I'd look at and go, he shouldn't be playing in that position. He should be playing, he should be playing left wing or he should be playing centre forward. That's not the case. So the one bit of criticism that, that English managers have got over oh, the last decade or so, or probably two decades, has been pragmatism. Has been, why don't we just take the game to the opposition instead of worrying about them? But I think what we've seen with Gareth Southgate is, is he's getting this blend right. Now, it's very, very difficult to play pleasing football on the eye, but also get the results. Very few teams in world football can do it. You know, we've seen it domestically with a few teams, but not a lot of teams can do it. But I think with England, you see the players that are available and you think, right, why can't we do this? But sometimes it doesn't fit how things work. So, yeah, I would probably say that when you look at the Netherlands, when you look at other, other nations, they are getting this, wow, they've been, they've been phenomenal. Whereas England get the result and it's like, oh, okay. Maybe because the expectation levels are so high for England now. You know, when, when you get to the final of a Euros and when you get to the semifinals of a World Cup, your next step is to go and win it or to reach the final of the World Cup. So, you know, these expectations are are on these players, but it's expectation that these players can deal with because the majority of the majority of them have been so close before. And I'm confident that, like I say, if they can give a good performance against France, I think it's going to be very close. They can win. It's going to be difficult. But if they can win that game, then whew, the, confidence, the confidence that that's going to give them then going forward to potentially go and win the World Cup because they've been so close. And, you know, there's some phenomenal players there. So hopefully they can go that one step further and make the final. Yeah, Danny, you've been so generous with your time. I was going to let you go, but you, you touched on one last thing there that I, <laughs> that, okay. that I wanted to ask you about because we talked about it a little bit on our last podcast. You mentioned about, you know, the differences in international play versus domestic play. Um, it's clear to see. What is that? Like, what is behind that? Is it just that... You know, players are coming together that don't usually play with one another, so chemistry is not going to be there like it is when you're with your club mm. team. Is it down to just the stakes of losing in a tournament are so great that managers are going to be more conservative than they would be when you can lose a game by playing on the front foot and it's not the end of the world? What What is it down to? I think there's there's two things. So I think what we've seen, a lot of, a lot of the shocks that we saw in particular in the group stages were counter-attacking teams that create a lot of problems for teams that were dominating possession. Now, one of the teams that I thought were going to go really far in the tournament, and I got it completely wrong, but I'm sure a number of other people thought so as well, was Denmark. You know, I thought Denmark would, yeah. would, would comfortably get out of the group with the plays that they had and, and, and go quite deep into this World Cup with the plays the way that, the way that Ericsson... They were a put. disaster. They were. So then I thought to myself, well, can it just be that they're not all playing well? And then, and then it like... It, it started to dawn on me whether there's any truth in it or, or not. I looked at the players that were playing for Denmark and other than Ericsson and maybe a couple of other players, they, the rest of the players played for teams that counter-attacked, that were more often than not the underdog, you know, players from Brentford, players from, from not huge teams. So therefore, you then come into this tournament with Denmark where people are respecting them a lot because of what they've done previously because of the players that they've got in the team. And all of a sudden, they're now, after, they're now having to be this possession-based team. But they've only got 
a few players that are used to playing in possession-based teams. So it's very, very difficult to do that. And that's what you, that's what you'll often see from, from a lot of, you know, national teams compared to domestic teams. You're playing domestically for, for your team and then you go and play internationally. Kevin De Bruyne, for me, arguably the best midfielder in the world at the moment. You could see his understanding with the players around him for Belgium, not being disrespectful. They're not as good as the players that he plays for for Manchester City. No, so no and they're all, they're all fighting too as well. You yeah. So, so some of the balls that he would ordinarily play when he's playing for Manchester City, they're just not on. So you can also have that as well. But what I think, going back to England, what I think Gareth Southgate has done, he's sort of got this balance. He's got this middle ground where, yes, they can be a counter-attacking team, but yes, they can be possession-based. Now, I'm not saying they're going to, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if England went to a back three against France. And said, right, you know what? We're going to soak up a little bit of pressure. Maybe we can double up on, on on Mbappe, and then we can look to get you on the break. Now, if they wanted to do that, they can do that, and that's what I think Gareth Southgate's got in his armory. Where of a lot of the a lot of national teams, it's like, you know what? This is what we are. We are either possession based or even or either counter attacking based. I think with England, dependent on the opposition, they can play possession based or they can play counter attacking football, and I think that's something that could, you know, that could that could see them well against France. You know, we know how France are going to sell. We know what France are going to do, They the way that they play. You know, they, they have one way of playing. They love to get the ball out wide. They love to get the likes of Mbappe. Then you've got the midfielders that love to dictate the game. But with England, you've got players that are capable. Bellingham, you know, is he going to play in that number 10 position? Is he going to play of one, one of three central midfielders? Is he going to sit at times? So you, you've got the element of surprise with England at the moment. So I just feel that that's the biggest the biggest takeaway for me so far in this World Cup is that you've had players coming from domestic teams and quite a lot of them coming to play for the national team where they're expected to play completely different because of the quality of the opposition either they're playing against or the quality of the team that they are either favouring counter-attacking, counter-attacking or favouring possession base, which isn't necessarily the case when they're playing for their domestic team. Danny, you're the best. I could do this all day. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. <laughs> Thank um, you. I'm sure we'll catch up again sometime soon. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, gentlemen. Take care. Danny Higginbotham, awesome. Really enjoyed that conversation. He's great. Great insight uh, that, on every on everything, honestly. Danny's great. He really is. Um, just wanted, before we get out to, whatever your views are on Greg Berhalter, or the U.S. men's national team, us, whether we're Gregologists, we are all united in never wanting to see or hear this again. Hey, Mr. President, heads up. It's called soccer. Go USA. You guys are going to do it. Ugh. You just... You hate it when the politicians get involved. That is so... It's so corny, though. I know, I know, I know. Hey, Mr. President, heads up. Oh, no. I'm trying to think of a time where it has genuinely worked. When like a, a political figure got involved and it and it worked. We were all like, I mean, I guess, look, this is, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say, I don't like giving away my political affiliations. If people who have listened long enough probably know what they are. You are a raging libertarian <laughs> and you want to move you're a survivalist and you want to move to Oregon and live in the snow maybe history has not 
maybe not all of this has aged it well, but I would say in the moment after 9-11 when George W. Bush threw out the first pitch of Game 3 at Yankee Stadium in the old one There was a feeling. It was that was a it felt like a cool moment, regardless of who you voted for. That's how it felt. Um, I still think the coolest thing about that was the banner that was held. America fears no one play ball. I love that. That was just that was that that I loved. But I do get felt like one of those moments that like the country kind of needed to see that. Yeah. Um, So I I guess I guess we'll go with that. I'm trying to think if there's any other that I can. Tony Blair, when he got in with the Labour Party in 97, just literally invited all of Oasis and Blur and all the cool bands that represented a movement called by the press Cool Britannia to 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 Downing Street for like a party like he, uh-huh. he wanted to foster that and I guess at the time that was seen as kind of like there was the Spice Girls the Oasis everybody was there there was some footballers too it seemed kind of okay but okay. generally it's bad yeah, and it's, it's insincere. They just like to be... I mean, look, I'm not surprised that like an American team, the president of that country would in some way want to be a part of it, I guess. Like, yeah. I guess we're just... We've grown accustomed to that, but yeah, it's... I don't know. It, it's not for me. <laughs> didn't get me pumped, like I'll say no. that. Like, I, it's not that I, I didn't hate it, but I wasn't like... I wasn't saluting the television, like, <laughs> you know? So. It would have been funnier if... When the ball lands over, when Tyler Adams kicks the ball and it lands on the White House lawn, like Joe Biden gets a knife, punctures the ball and starts shouting, you get out of here. Why are you kicking things into my lawn, you pesky kids? If I told you once, you know, like something like that. See, if it were me producing that, I would hire like a body double of Biden and like shoot it from behind and have him just like have like Neymar-esque moves on the ball. (laughs) <laughs> and then, like, and it, and like, then it cut back to his face, and like, and then his hip pops out. <laughs> I don't know that I would go quite that far, but <laughs> there's some people sure. would love that. <laughs> oh, this was fun, man! I enjoyed this. <laughs> I enjoyed this podcast quite a bit. Uh, our thanks to Danny Higginbotham. We got to speak to him again soon. We can't go that long between. Conversations well, I can't wait. Is I'm I'm about to start teams that will only play four four two forever, and <laughs> I'm going to grow the next American striker. Yep, it's my yeah. it's my it's my job. <laughs> uh, hey, we'll be back, of course, midweek with more of a, a reaction on what went down in the round of sixteen. Look ahead to the quarterfinals. Can't wait, JJ. This was fun, man. To you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. I'll see you. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.